My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. It was 1978 when we moved south, and in the last episode, I talked a little bit about the beginnings of the time, the first few months, and the anticipation I had of moving from Northern Ireland and beginning to understand the first senses of prejudice and othering that I had had that were specific to Protestant and Catholic, and specific to what I understood was political rights and wrongs, and how I hadn't been aware of prejudice, and I hadn't been aware of the power structures of Northern Ireland. So what I'm going to talk about in this episode, the first roughly four years we lived in the South, because we stayed in South County Dublin for four years, and later we moved again. In those four years, I want to try to paint a picture of this young person changing from childhood, having been through one year of secondary school in the North, in what was a tough school, at changing into being in this school for specifically young girls, young women, that was a private school that was fee-paying. There were both day girls and, more expensively, there were boarders. And they came from middle-class and, in some cases, wealthy families. In Ireland, the, the boarders would have come from even further afield. There were boarders from Africa, from Nigeria, and other places. And there were boarders from all over Ireland. And then there were day girls who were primarily from South County Dublin and a little bit into North Wicklow, commuting up. I want to try to imagine my own impressions back then, try to paint a little bit of a picture of people's impressions of me, which I couldn't see clearly and probably still can't see clearly now, but I certainly couldn't see how I was viewed at the time. But I can imagine, sometimes with humor, what I must have seemed like. For one thing... Although I became pretty intent throughout my secondary school years on trying to pass, trying to fit in, having had such negative experiences of school in the North, and I began to figure out a little bit about how you could make friends in that one year in secondary school in the North, but I was very intent upon being liked. It was really important to me that I make friends, and on my first day, in school, I remember making a friend and bringing her home to show my mother because I wanted to prove that I could make friends. The passing or how I could fit in became really critical, but 
it's interesting to me looking back to know that I was also really resistant to many things in that context and particularly in that socioeconomic class, which were perhaps influenced by my experiences of conflict and understanding of conflict and understandings that I was trying to make sense of the world at such a young age as you are when you're coming into early adolescence. And I was determined in those years to keep my Northern Irish accent. My older sister was much more impelled to need to fit in, and she quite quickly did the opposite. If anything, she was trying to get a South County Dublin accent to be with her friends a bit older teens. And my younger sister, being in primary school, had just slowly absorbed, I think, a South Dublin accent. But I used to actually almost put it on. I'd try to thicken the way I talked. I'd try to make sure that those vials came through. And I was teased about this. You would have thought that my desire to fit in would have meant that I might have want to lose it, but for whatever reason, it held on to where I was from. It was some anchor I needed. I can remember being asked in class to read out loud from what we were studying, which was what in English, which was Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, and my classmates finding it very funny. The phrase I had to read out was, how now, Juliet, what comes? And the whole class was full of giggles of, hi now, hi now, Susie. And I also remember saying we were very into Charlie Brown and uh, Snoopy. And again, I remember my friends saying, Snoopy, Susie, the word Snoopy, it's not Snoopy. That feeling of who I was when I began was this little Northern Irish kid. And because I had been in this secondary school that I'd been in where we fought at lunchtime, where there was caning, where there was what my mother would have called a much rougher crowd. I had a lot of peculiar kind of violent notions in my head. And I think in my language was like, I'll kill you. I'll kill you for that. You know, and I remember if a friend in school said something to me that I found in some way offensive, I used to kick them in the shins. At least nice South County Dublin girls would kind of step back and look at me, you know, and but I, I did it. I used to, I can remember particularly one friend that I'd be in first year. If they said something that I didn't agree with, I'd, I'd be like, no, 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 and I'd kick them. And on one occasion in first year when I discovered that I needed glasses, I was finding it harder and harder to see the blackboard, that I had a maths and science teacher who was one of the few male teachers in the school. I got a new glasses case with my glasses. He came over and picked up my glasses case and sort of was lagging me and making fun a bit. And he put chalky fingers all over my brand new glasses case. And I kicked him too, under the table. I said, put it down. And gave him a kind of jolt of a kick. And he also backed away from me <laughs> with a horror or a bemusement of this funny wee child that they now got in first year. And I wasn't reprimanded by anybody. And, and I know that it slowly went away in this environment and that I didn't do that sort of thing for very long. After that, it was supplemented or replicated by being mischievous 
And I did a lot of things that were tricks, particularly the license to do tricks on April Fool's Day, for example. I would have got involved definitely in anything that involved um, mischief. I think the teachers and the environment was this much smaller classrooms, much more friendly atmosphere, really, even though we would have provoked our teachers at times. They were certainly, from my lens, where I had had these quite terrifying teachers who caned or threw dusters at you across the classroom or whacked down meter sticks between you if you were talking. I was first thinking it was a very soft environment and it, and it was kind of easy to get away with getting everyone to drop their books and scare up a teacher or, you know, different mischief. It was it was like maybe I was testing the boundaries of of this and I was also I mentioned that I had been a very quiet child and I was beginning to act out things, but I was beginning to find my voice and be angry about things and take opinions of things and argue and I imagine at home standing up more to my older sister and arguing more at home as well and back in the north I think when I was bringing these wider perspectives I was gaining I think I was probably very directly pushing them in the faces of my relatives and challenging their worldviews at the same time as my wanting to be friends with people I was bulking against what I found around me in certain parts of attitudes and possibly a little more from the parents of my friends and their world that I was trying to understand than directly from my friends themselves. Because one of the things that I think my parents were still trying to mold me in uh, to be a nice young lady and I was sent to join up girl guides and church youth groups that sometimes had camps away. And I, and I was very focused on trying to understand this thing called religion and trying to see if I could find anything of value in it, in its purer spiritual elements, rather than what I knew it had done, which was fuel sectarian violence. So I was conflicted by being sent to things that were quite proper, quite Sunday schoolish, I think. And I would challenge there too, and I would ask questions. And I remember particularly asking questions about who the Christian traditions said could go to heaven and who couldn't, and what sins were, and who got to say that, and who was excluded then. Did this mean that if these people could go to heaven, then all of the people before there was Christianity didn't go to heaven, who were never encountered Judeo-Christian traditions, weren't in heaven, all of humanity for so many centuries, or those that had come since Christ and those that lived in all parts of the world that never encountered Christianity, whether they were indigenous peoples or whether they were Hindus or Muslim. And so I, I was very challenging of the ideas around me, while at the same time desperately trying to keep friends and make friends. It was 1980s Dublin, that uh, those four years from 1978 to 1982, where we were around Glenagiri, Dunleary, and Dublin City. And they were times that were much freer, perhaps, 
than they might be for 12, 13, 14, 15-year-olds because there was a trust in the world that our parents' generation still had. There was a certain amount of awareness of stranger danger, but not to the degree that would come later. And so we were free to walk down to Dunleary and hang out, and it was the affluent borough that was developing and had Ireland's first shopping mill built in Dunleary, where we then went and hung out as teenagers at the mall. And we went and hung out on the piers, and we were able to take the bus into Dublin, and there's songs uh, of the era, like one by Bagatelle, about the summer in Dublin and the Liffey when it stank like hell, and the young people walking on Grafton Street, and I think that was a very hot summer. And the song lyrics that talk about going into Dublin or out on a 46A and being stuck talking to a drunk on the bus telling me how to get rich. That was the 1980s, and I was beginning to be aware of music. I was experimenting, and really only for that short period did I really experiment with clothes and makeup. I think I continued to try to do that into my later teens and early 20s, but actually I'd never really had a big interest in appearance and clothes. So, But that would have probably been the peak of it in those early years where we were following some trends. And I remember one funny one of wearing it, uh, going and buying a tiny strip of velvet ribbon that we then tied in our knot at our necks when we went to parties and discos. And we had these in each other's houses as well. I remember record players, very simple record players, and singles that we played. And my first real love of any band, my first passion was the Boomtown Rats and Bob Geldof and the songs like Tell Me Why I Don't Like Mondays, which we barely understood, and um, Rat Pack and Rat Trap and so on. And slowly other music was coming in. These parties were part of where we shared that music and shared our sense of fashion and all of this kind of thing and started to have more and more boyfriends. I had mentioned that my first boyfriend was a Catholic neighbor and I seemed to continue to seek out somehow. I It's really hard to imagine how this happened, but I seemed to continue to seek out different and diversity. I think probably from this desire to shake off where I'd had ignorance about different people because my in sequence I had some boys who were boyfriends who were what my mother probably would have been happy with as nice, polite, South County Dublin, Protestant or Catholic young men. Uh, but I also went out with people of colour. I went out with a young man who was adopted but was black. I went out with someone from Pakistan. I was out in the world exploring and trying to understand the world and my own identity. In some ways, it can appear quite a simple life, and in some ways it was. You know, we went to the cinema in Dublin on the bus and came home, went to these discos and pushed the boundaries I could, what my parents or teachers or Sunday school or whatever the youth camp things were. And I think I was also sent 
back north for holidays to various relatives, and I definitely spent a couple of Easter's and summers back in Camp Hill picking fruit in the biodynamic farm. I don't think I was in those four years as connected to nature in any way that I had been as a child. I think I still liked it, and I know my father started doing more gardening again and made a vegetable patch and a patio, and I know I was brought in and been involved in that sort of practical skills I seem to have a desire to connect to were still there. Our real understanding of, of planning out a little garden and growing food in a small back garden and definitely climbing trees. I was still climbing trees because on one occasion I was up a tree and a boy from our neighborhood said, um, are you a girl or a boy? I think I must have had short hair in this year's. And I thought it was such a ridiculous question. And I said, why? And he said, well, I think you must be a boy because girls don't climb trees. Uh, at which point I thought that was hilarious. So I said, yes, I am a boy. And this boy thought I was a boy for quite a few years because I told him that my name was Stephen and I had a twin sister who looked exactly like me, who was called Susie, to cover the fact that he might see me in my school uniform with my kilt. And I used to bump into him in the neighborhood and he would ask, are you Susie or Stephen? And I would say whatever it felt like. So there were some interesting things on my edges that I was beginning to explore. Yet in those times in 1980s, there's a movie actually made called Sing Street that evokes a little bit of a sense of the innocence and yet the oppressive elements of those years as well. I think that I was beginning to explore other boundaries. I was beginning to explore something of gender, of maybe not quite yet anything about sexual identity, but I was definitely living through an era where we were not being taught anything about consent. I remember the first boy that French kissed me and I thought it was disgusting, but I didn't think to be able to say I don't like that. I, mean, I think I ended up liking it later, but I didn't think anything. There was no, there was no language around consent that you would consent to things or you have that kind of a dialogue. I think we didn't know to stand up. We, even though I was maybe arguing, you couldn't really oppose authority in any way, shape or form. Authority was fairly absolute from your parents who could ground you to your school who would put you in detention and uh, potentially expel you if things got too out of hand. So there were constraints. And I think what I was going to refer to earlier about parents and the world, the sort of milieu, if you like, of this middle-class neighborhoods, I think what I was beginning to be aware of were the expectations of success and the expectations that were also something I probably couldn't fully understand, but the, the, the signs were there of the different forms of success for women and for men in that society. Although I would give huge credit to my father, who would regularly hold up examples of women in that world doing things that women didn't traditionally do. So with as a father of three daughters, my father definitely promoted the idea that we could do anything that a man could do. 
whether we wanted to study engineering like he had, or whether we wanted to succeed in the business or political world. And there wouldn't have been as many examples of women doing that in the 1980s in Ireland, but he would find them, whether he found them in European stories or uh, if they showed up in Ireland. He definitely pointed them out to us. But I think that already I was balking against some of the notions of what success was meant to be and what direction I was meant to have in the world. And I think it comes as well from not really buying into and not really understanding I was being asked to buy into a social game and a kind of social climbing game. And I think that comes from the fact that I had become sensitized to power over and oppressive dynamic in those years while I unpicked what I understood to have happened in the North. And so the idea that some people held on to the power and passed it to each other through complex social games and other people were excluded, I couldn't have articulated any of that very clearly at the time, but I would have articulated it most in becoming a defender of the underdog in any situation and becoming a defender of anyone who said anything that hinted of prejudice, whether that was racist prejudice in Ireland. There wouldn't have been very many people of colour, but there were travellers, and I think I already knew the kinds of prejudice that people held in Ireland about the travelling community. And I would have stood up for anybody who seemed to be being oppressed or othered because of that background in the room. And as I say, I had much more of a lens, much more of a focus on intently trying to understand the human world, whereas I had as a child given up on trying to understand the human world and withdrawn really into my deeper connection I had with the natural world. And there's beginnings of juxtaposition of that like I said, I did spend time up in the north in the Camp Hill communities. I was around these things that were so soaking into me of people growing food in organic and biodynamic ways, like my father, grandfather, and Camp Hill. I didn't really look at that directly. I just was in it. I was in it in the nature exploring we continued to do as a family, the hiking in the Wicklow Mountains, the holidays, camping in Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales, France. And a little story that comes to mind is also this edge of suburbia that we lived in. When we moved south, my parents chose a house in a housing estate that was newly built. And it was being built on the grounds of a former large house, one of the many landed gentry, Westbrook houses that exist across South County Dublin and into Wicklow in the, what was the pale of settlement for the British and the Protestant ruling class pre-independence. There were properties like this that were either in the hands of private ownership, these big old houses, or later in the next booms that would roll through Dublin in housing. They might have been owned by the church, both Catholic and Protestant churches, owned large amounts of land. 
And so Dublin was doing infill and building. And so we bought this house that was in this estate and there were little remnants across the estate in the trees I was climbing of the old gardens of the house and the wild edges and the stony walls. In fact, one tree that I felt very sad about and very connected to its story was in our front garden, a very unusual large beech tree in our front garden. But after we moved in, it slowly started to be dying. And we discovered that there was a tree surgeon who'd been employed as part of the obligations for the builder to not disturb some of the old trees of this estate. They had been concerned. And one of them was this big beech tree in our front garden, and we found out it was a specimen tree. It was some kind of unusual beech, I think, I must look it up, was a fern leaf beech. And so the tree surgeon who was contracted came along and assessed the tree and talked to Dad and I remember being outside and listening to these conversations and he said that the roots had been badly damaged in the by the builders digging up foundations of houses and so on. And what he needed to try to do was to give special food and help and support to the tree and maybe it could survive. So he came back and he trimmed some branches back and he dug little holes all through our lawn and put down some kind of a mix of a tree food. And we watched and waited, but sadly what he feared was, because he couldn't find very many roots when he would dig down, is that the builders had actually chopped all the way around the tree, um, rather than just on one side where the road was near it. And so the tree died and we had to have it taken down. And I do remember feeling really sad about this tree and hugging it and wondering about it and wondering about its its rarity or not. And so I guess there was still some threads of those connections, but I definitely think for those four years, a lot of my attention was turned towards the battleground of fitting in yet not really liking the social games, fitting in but being intolerant of prejudice and othering, and trying to find my own understanding of expression like teenagers in that context with music and relationships early exploring and trying to seek out diversity wherever I could to have another lens and another understanding. So before I finish this entry on the four years in Glenagiri, I want to read out from a diary that my dad persuaded us all to try to keep. I think I did do about six months of, of random entries in it, but he tried to have the whole family to create it, and this is his entry as to why. This is the diary of the Reed family who are living in Dublin at the beginning of the 1980s. We moved here in August 1978 after living the first 17 years of married life in Bangor County Down. John Reed is 43 years old and works as a sales director for an industrial service company. Jackie, also 43, looks after our home and welfare, occasionally takes part-time work. There are three girls, 
Jane age 16, Suzanne age 13, Claire is 11. They are all at school nearby. It is hoped that the events recorded here will serve to chronicle the more mundane events of our lives so that future generations will learn a little about how we lived at the beginning of a new decade. My entry at the beginning of the book says, My name, Suzanne Mary Reed, Susie for short. I have fair hair, although not as fair as my little sister's. It is very short. My eyes are blue and I am quite tall for my age. I am almost taller than my big sister. I like drawing. I am not very good at it, but I am improving. I like hockey, another sport. I am usually friendly with my little sister, but not with my big sister. She doesn't get along with me. Perhaps by the end of this diary, we will be good friends, but I don't think so. I still miss the North, but I have good friends here at the moment. And this is one of the very typical entries on a Saturday. Went shopping, bought things for exam and for mum. Went to school for a hockey match. It was against a boys' school, which is unusual. It was very hard. Only one other girl and I tackled. We lost nine points to zero. It was very tiring and enjoyable. I then went with Dad and played squash. Later our neighbour came and played Dad and then me. I had a swim and saw Bren. I went to the bar and got a drink of orange. Came home with our neighbour and watched things on TV. One of them was a film called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. It was good. Then this is an entry from a school day. I was almost late for school today, but one of my friend's dads picked me up from the end of the road that I was walking along. During Irish class, I do not do, do Irish because I'm exempt. I did my maths homework and also some work on my project for geography on Zambia that I got help from my aunt who'd lived there. Maths class wasn't too bad, but a bit boring. After school, I went down to a hairdresser's that I worked in the summer and got my hair cut. My hair is very short now. I came home and did my homework, watched some TV and went to bed. Mum is still in hospital and I don't know when she's coming back. So that was written in a year when my mum had a back operation and that's why she was in hospital and she came back and was unable to move about very well for quite a while. And I think there was a time when my sisters were both away on different trips and my father was working and I looked after my mum and the house and remember realising that even though we were always given a certain amount of chores in our house, we were usually had a task list and took turns doing dishes and drying and hoovering and cleaning. But whenever my mum was ill, there's another entry somewhere else in the diary that says, I didn't realise how much my mum did. So that's me at age 13, I think, in that diary. And it gives a flavour of, um, as my father said, the mundane aspects of life. And one of the things when he found it recently and we pulled it out and were reading entries from it, some of which were very funny to us all, 
that especially about who we did or didn't get along with in terms of the sisters that I had really not remembered was how active I was. I knew that we mainly cycled to school on that entry. I walked and was nearly late, but we usually cycled to school from our house and I then played hockey and squash and swam. And any time that we were with our friends, we walked everywhere around that area of South County Dublin and then just took buses into Dublin. So it's very interesting to think about today's children and the level of activities that we had were in part due to how we got about and in part like kids today if you're involved in sports at all. And I did stay involved in sport up until college. When I went to college, there wasn't sports facilities, so I didn't do very much after that. But it is uh, kind of funny to look back and see that activity level. And I think it probably helped with the, as I talked about, the kind of angst that teenagers are going through and the identity questions and really my growing injustice, anger and frustration at the world that I saw around me and the injustices and oppressions that I understood to be there, but didn't really have any outlet for that anger. And so probably it was a good thing that I was playing a lot of sport. I always was very aggressive in sport, although I was competitive in the moment over a ball. So if I was chasing a hockey ball, I would have hacked away to get at it and similarly if I was playing squash I'd have dived to get the point but usually I didn't remember whether we had won or lost because I didn't actually care about the outcome of games as much as I cared about competing over that one small moment in a game. Yeah I think that definitely was helping with my un underlying unease and getting to know a new culture and getting to know how I was supposed to behave within that culture. I will leave that there, and, and the next time I'll talk about what happens when we move again after those four years.